your Bibles, I'm going to go ahead and invite you to turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7, we're going to be reading the entire chapter this morning. In Romans 15, the Apostle Paul wrote, for everything that was written in the past was written so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. Uh, This morning, we're going to encounter a passage of scripture that was written in the past, which would spur us in our endurance and encouragement that we might have hope, especially a hope to pursue holiness in an unholy culture. And so if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to stand with me as we look at Deuteronomy chapter 7, reading the entire chapter, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 through 26 this morning. This is God's word to us. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods, and the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. This is what you are to do to them. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down the Asherah poles, and burn their idols in the fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the earth of the, to be his people his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection upon you and choose you because you were more numerous than many nations or other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his command. But those who hate him, he will repay to their face by destruction. He will not slow to repay to their face those who hate him. Therefore, take care to follow the commands and decrees I give you today. If you pay attention to these laws and are careful to follow them, then the Lord your God will keep his covenant of love with you as he swore to your ancestors. He will love you and bless you and increase your numbers. He will bless the fruit of your womb and the crops of your land, your grain, your new wine and olive oil, the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flocks in the land he swore to your ancestors to give you. You will be blessed more than any other people. None of your men or women will be childless, nor Will any of your livestock be without young? The Lord will keep you free from every disease. He will not inflict upon you the horrible diseases you knew in Egypt, but he will inflict them upon all who hate you. You must destroy all the peoples that the Lord your God gives over to you. Do not look on them with pity. Do not serve their gods, for they will be a snare to you. You may say to yourselves, these nations are stronger than we are. How can we drive them out? But do not be afraid of them. Remember Well, what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all of Egypt, 
You saw with your own eyes the great trials, the signs, the wonders, the mighty hand and the outstretched arm with which the Lord your God brought you out. The Lord your God will do the same to all the peoples you now fear. Moreover, the Lord your God will send the hornet among them until even the survivor that is hidden from you has perished. Do not be afraid of them, for the Lord your God who is among you is a great and awesome God. The Lord your God will drive out those nations before you little by little. You will not be able to allow you will not be allowed to eliminate them all at once or the wild animal will multiply around you. But the Lord your God will deliver them over to you, throwing them into great confusion until they are destroyed. He will give their kings into your hand and you will wipe out their names from under earth. For no one will be able to stand up against you. You will destroy them. The images of their gods you were to burn in the fire. Do not covet the silver and gold on them. And do not take it for yourselves, or you will be ensnared by it. For it is detestable to the Lord your God. Do not bring a detestable thing into your house, or you, like it, will be set apart for destruction. Regard it as vile and utterly detested, for it is to be set apart for destruction. You may be seated. We ask the Lord to bless the study of his word. Heavenly Father, Lord, commit this time to you. Guard me from error. Bless your people. Stir our hearts to worship. In Jesus' holy name, we ask and pray. Amen. This morning's passage has a lot to teach us about pursuing holiness amid an unholy culture. Moses' instruction to the Israelites was given as they prepared to enter into the land that the Lord God had promised Abraham and his descendants. If you're interested in learning more about those promises, you can read about them in Genesis 12 and following. But for the sake of time, we can summarize the promises that were made to Abraham as a promise to make his descendants into a great nation that would dwell in a particular land and that God would provide for them and that they would be a blessing to all the peoples of the earth. And as God began to fulfill this promise, the people grew and they were known as Israel. Our passage here in Deuteronomy 7 tells a portion of the story of how God kept his promise to Israel by delivering them into the promised land. But there's a problem with the promised land. It's occupied. Verses one, uh, verse 1 lists seven different nations in the region at that time. For those of you that might be kind of interested in this detail, you have the Hittites that probably came from Anatolia. You have the Girgashites that were probably a tribal people in the northern portion of Palestine. Then you had the Amorites and the Canaanites. Uh, Amorites were probably part of the Judean hill country, and the Canaanites were probably more to the coast. The Perizzites, similar to the Amorites, likely in the central hill country in this region. The Hivites were kind of like a tent dweller, um, somewhat nomadic, the northern area of Palestine. And then you had the Jebusites that were closer to um, Jerusalem, and they would tend to be the type that the people would fight against with more regularity. The Israelites would fight against with more regularity. Oftentimes, the language of just Canaanite is applied to all of these people, the people that dwell in the land. These nations represent the enemies of Israel that had to be driven out of the land before the Israelites could go in and possess the land in fulfillment of the Lord's promise. God's command was that Israel would trust him and enter the land occupied by these nations. But the problem is, is these are nations that are far more settled, that are greater, that are larger. And yet, 
the Israelites would have to believe that God would keep his promise and that he would drive out the enemies in the land. As they obeyed God and they moved into the land, which he promised them, the Israelites were to keep themselves holy, unstained from the unholy culture that they were stepping into. As verse 2 states, they were forbidden from making peace with the inhabitants of the land. They were commanded to go in and drive out the enemies. They were to defeat the enemies completely by the power and the provision of the Lord. In fact, when we read verse 2, it's a little bit jarring. It's unsettling to read the words of our merciful God telling his people to show them no mercy. And our impulse at that moment is to say, why wouldn't God command the Israelites to be merciful? And that's not a bad question. I talked about this a little bit last week, how we were going to have to wrestle with that. It's a good question because what it's doing is it's calling to mind the way that God has actually described himself. In Exodus 33 and 34, when Moses says, show me your glory, God says, I will reveal my name to you. I will show you who I am. And the way that God describes himself is this way. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. And to this we say yes and amen. This is exactly how God describes himself, but we must be very careful not to cut God off when he's speaking. Because not only does God move from describing himself as the merciful and gracious God, in those same verses he goes on to tell Moses, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. You see, it is absolutely true that God is merciful, yet it would be false to say that he is only merciful and not also just. The inhabitants of the land had been there for centuries, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, hearing stories of the God of Israel, having time to turn away from their falsehoods and their wicked practices, which we're going to see as we study Deuteronomy more. This is not a quaint little town. They were engaged in great wickedness, idolatry. And yet, for centuries, the rain fell, as Jesus would say, on the just and the unjust. And that they had time to turn away from God and to flee his judgment. Yet they did not repent. Some did. Rahab repented. You know the story of Rahab in the book of Joshua as the Israelites are making their way to take the city of Jericho? Rahab hears the stories about what God is doing and she reports to the spies. She said, our hearts melted within us when we heard what your God had done. And she said, I'm changing teams. I know who's going to win this one. And God did not say, oh, sorry, there's no mercy for you. He promised through his spies, because you have changed your allegiance and you have turned to the Lord, you and your whole household will be saved, which, as we see, kind of begins to be an echo of what we find in the book of Acts with the Philippian jailer. Rahab repented, and what happened? She did not incur the judgment of God. And everyone in her household that turned did not incur the judgment of God. They received the mercy of God. Yet for those that would remain obstinate and rebel against God, 
God was not simply merciful, he was also just. Yes, he was the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate, the gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love, but slow to anger does not mean that he does not eventually become angry with the wicked. And there would be a time when the mercy would reach its point and where the people would make a decision, will I embrace him or not? And so what we find in Deuteronomy 7 is that the day of judgment has come and that God is going to use Israel as an instrument of his judgment against the nations that have rebelled against him. He's using them as an instrument to punish these seven evil nations. It's not so much that Israel is driving out the inhabitants of the promised land as the Lord is driving them out using Israel. The Lord is using the Israelites to punish and drive out evil nations. And as he's doing so, the Israelites must be holy, set apart for the work, like priestly tools to cleanse the land of wickedness, which is why he commands the Israelites to not just drive them out, but to not make peace with them, not to even intermarry with the pagan nations. Now, I need to make a, I need to make a side note here, okay? Because this passage has been misused before. I heard this growing up. As a side note, I need to deal with the fact when it talks about not intermarrying This has nothing to do with ethnicity or nationality. It has to do with religion. Scripture nowhere prohibits people of different ethnicities and nationalities from marrying one another. On the flip side, though, Scripture is very clear that God's people should not marry those that are not God's people. They should marry those, be joined together with those that follow God as they do. Believers should not marry unbelievers in hopes of changing them. We called that missionary dating back in college. It never worked. We are not to be unequally yoked. Now, with that said, if you find yourself here this morning and you are married to someone that is not a believer, and you are wondering, what am I to do? God's word is sufficient in that it tells us to take heart as long as your spouse is living with you in an understanding way, not being abusive or harmful to you. Scripture encourages you to remain married to them in hopes that God would use you in their life. There is more to be said here But what I wanted you to make sure that you heard is a clarification regarding this idea of how this intermarriage text work. This does not prohibit people of different ethnicities, nationalities, or races marrying one another. It prohibits people that do not believe the same. They do not trust Christ, do not believe in God the same. And oftentimes things that I saw that were often deplorable is I would see people say, no, those two people can't be married even though they both love the Lord. And they would rather their children marry someone that looked like them instead of that believed like them. And that is abominable. And we should submit ourselves to what Scripture actually teaches here. Now, that's a side note. That wasn't what the author of Deuteronomy, Moses, was thinking about. But sometimes you've got to do a little bit of house cleaning when you're a preacher in the South. (laughs) So, not only were the Israelites not to intermarry with the nations, but they were not to tolerate their idols or places of worship in the land. Why? Because verse 16, not verse 16, verse 6 tells us, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. As the holy people of the Lord, Israel was to live differently amid an unholy culture. So we move from verses 1 through 6 into verse 7 through 11, and we go on to see Moses developing this theme of holiness in relationship to God's election of Israel. We are told that they were not chosen because there was something inherently good in them. 
They were not promised victory because they were powerful or had great potential. No, God picked them. He set his affection upon them because it was his pleasure to do so. His choice of Israel was rooted in his love. And then from this pronouncement of his love in verses 7 through 11, the Lord moves on to warn them against two temptations, or at least two temptations, that they're going to face as they enter into the land. The first temptation is described in verses 12 through 16, which deals with Israel's temptation to lust after the things of the nations. And then verses 17 through 26 deals with Israel's fear of the nations. So let's consider the danger of their lust. With verses 12 through 16, the Lord knows that the enemies that the Israelites are dispossessing, they are a well-known group of pagan worshipers. And what they are doing as pagan worshipers is they're engaged in this idea of what is called a fertility cult. And a a fertility cult, what that means is it's not just related to um, having children, but it's the idea that if you worship our gods as prescribed, then these particular gods that have regional power over particular areas in your life, then you're going to have... um, blessing in those areas. So there's a God that's the God over travel, maybe travel related to the sea. So if you're going to be making a journey one day and you're, you're traveling over sea, well, what do you do? You got to make sure that you make a sacrifice to the, the sea travel God. If you are a farmer, a particular area, you got to make sure that you sacrifice to one of those gods. Your wife is pregnant or she's barren and she wants to be able to have kids. You've got to be able to sacrifice. And sometimes those sacrifices were extreme. The Canaanites practiced child sacrifice You see that later on in Scripture talking about sacrifices made to Molech. And so here would be the temptation. As they entered into the land, they're going to have hard times. And as they engage in these hard times, the tendency may be to look at the neighboring nations, because they're not all going to be driven out at once, and go, wow, they seem to be prospering more than me. Maybe I ought to do the things they're doing that I would experience the blessing they're experiencing. So the temptation is to say, I could become like a Canaanite. Because if I want the life that the Canaanites had, then what I ought to do is live like a Canaanite. Which honestly, if you want to know what the book of Judges is all about, the book of Judges is about the story of the Canaanization of the Israelites. They eventually become like the nations they were supposed to dispossess. So what is being tempted here is to become like the nations instead of being holy. They would be idol worshipers instead of worshiping the one true God, they would be violating the first commandment. So that was the temptation that Moses deals with and addresses in verses 12 through 16. So if that's one temptation, what's the other? The other temptation is to walk in and see how overwhelming the enemy is and to fear. The Israelites would not be blind to the greatness and the power of their enemies. They were more numerous, they were more settled, they were more powerful Yet these enemies lacked what the Israelites possessed. What did the Israelites possess? The favor of the Lord God's presence that would go before them. The battle already belonged to the Lord. The victory had already been assured. All the Israelites had to do was walk in that victory to keep themselves unstained from the unholy culture that they were invading and obey what God had commanded. His word would not fail. They could trust him. So the final portions of our passage encourage the Israelites, don't be like the people and don't fear the people. Trust the Lord. 
Thus the words of Deuteronomy 7, which the Israelites heard through Moses from the Lord, would serve to prepare them to live as a chosen and holy people committed to the Lord who had guaranteed their victory over their enemies as they settled in the promised land. It would fill them with hope to pursue holiness in an unholy culture because they knew that their God was with them. Brothers and sisters, there are so many points of application that could be drawn from this passage this morning as we as Christians seek to live holy lives in an unholy culture. We too, like the Israelites in Deuteronomy, are described as a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God in 1 Peter 2, 9. In Ephesians 1, 3, we are told that we've been chosen in Christ in love to be holy and blameless in his sight. We too belong to God on the basis of his grace alone in Christ alone, not our own merit. So while it is very true that Deuteronomy 7 is describing the terms of warfare for Israelites against seven nations at a particular time in history, not to be repeated, there is still great implications for Christians who are engaged in warfare, but of a different kind. As Ephesians 6, 12 tells us, for our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So as we march forward to take possession of the promised land that Christ has secured for us through his life, his death, and his resurrection, what might we learn from Deuteronomy 7 about pursuing holiness in an unholy culture? There are four quick points that I would like to make. The first is that we must realize who we are. We must realize who we are and that who we are precedes how we are to live. What I mean by that is that God told the Israelites they were his chosen people before he obeyed them. He called them to obey. Their obedience did not spring from a need to get an identity. Their obedience was rooted in the fact that they had an identity as the chosen people of God. We do not labor and work to be accepted as God's people. No, by God's grace, we are God's people. And on that foundation, we build our lives. We must realize who we are. The second thing we must do is we must refuse to make peace with the world. We must refuse to make peace with the world. Now, the danger with me saying that is to recognize that the New Testament talks about the world in all kinds of different ways. For God so loved the world, are we not supposed to make peace with the world that God loved? What's going on here? Well, the New Testament uses the language of world in different ways. Sometimes it talks about just peoples like us. Obviously, we're supposed to be peacemaker toward peoples. That's what Scripture is speaking of. And so when I say that we need to not make peace with the world, refuse to make peace with the world, I'm talking about what James 4 has in mind where it says that friendship with the world is enmity with God. We have to recognize that this world is not our home. This world is not governed by ideals and values of the kingdom of Christ. And that when we ask how we ought to live, we must come to God, have him speak to us, and not look to the world for our guidance and our wisdom. We cannot make peace with that which is at enmity with God. Realize who we are, refuse to make peace with the world, and then thirdly, we must recognize God's victory in Christ. One of the things that the Israelites are constantly told is, I will be with you. I will drive them out. The, God, the great, awesome Lord God is, is with you. Just march. One, one of the ways that you could say this is that 
we fight out of a place of victory, not defeat. You wake up and you're like, oh, my, my flesh, it's real, it's fighting against me. If you are in Christ Jesus, you are not fighting against the flesh out of a position of defeat, but of victory. It's one of the things Jesus tells his disciples. He says, you will have trouble in this world, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Do you recognize that the world that is at war with us in our flesh, the spiritual battle that we're fighting, it already belongs to him. I know that it was a joke. You know, we kind of think back about that song we sang back in the 80s and the 90s. Heavenly army, the battle belongs to the Lord. It's hokey, but it's true. It's true. He has already gone before us. We just walk in those footsteps of victory. Take heart. And then finally, not only do we realize who we are, refuse to make peace with the world and recognize God's victory in Christ, finally, if you're here today and you're not in Christ yet and you've heard all about the coming judgment, then repent like Rahab. You don't have to continue to be in allegiance to that system of the world to the desires of your flesh, you can repent like Rahab and be received into the family of God by grace through what Jesus Christ has done. That is the promise of his word this morning. You can be welcomed. You can be welcomed. Would you be welcomed this morning? Let's pray. As you reflect on the message this week, feel free to reach out to our staff by emailing care at copperfieldchurch.com. We would love to hear from you and pray for you. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and our other podcast, Equip for Good. Thanks for listening.